Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Alrighty, welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Leader and welcome to the episode today, Mr. John Fung. How are you, my friend? Yeah, very well, very well, sir. Pleased to meet you and it's a pleasure, you know, pleasure to be on here uh, down with you and your listeners. Thanks for having me on. No, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you because I know you've got a um, really interesting background which we want to delve into today and, and with this podcast going out to lots and lots of people around the world. And uh, thousands and thousands of listeners, it's, it's always about how do we uh, help sales leaders and their teams drive better results, more sustainable results. And I think uh, based on a, your background, I think there's a lot of things we can uh, we can delve into and talk about today. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Sam. We were, we were actually just talking before we pressed record about the technology. So listeners, if you're listening to this and the sound seems a little bit in, in and out, it's because we are... We're trying to work with technology today in 2022, and sometimes Zoom and the networks don't necessarily see eye to eye. So uh, hopefully it's coming through loud and clear. So, John, hey, great. <laughs> well, there might be a little bit of a delay, but that's that's okay. Um, John, just before we jump into, I guess, the crux of the conversation, just for our listeners, uh, uh, I'd love to get a bit of a, a bit of a quick background on on your story in terms of you know, what you've done and, and what's led you to be right now the Chief Revenue Officer for a pretty large organisation called Domain here in Australia. Great, great. Well, I'll give you the five-minute version, uh, Darren, in terms of how I, how I fell into sales. We can dive into it. There's probably a multi-hour version if you have a lot of coffee and or liquor. Uh, but um, just the, the short of it is, uh, I grew up in, in Sydney on the Sydney side. Uh, I, I, I always loved business growing up. I studied business studies. I studied economics. You know, I was fascinated by those things. I, when I read the newspaper, I'd always read the finance section. So I, I loved business growing up, even more than sport, which I was not very good at, uh, even more than arts and other things. Um, and my early career was not in sales at all. Uh, I started off as a technologist. Uh, I studied information systems and business. Uh, I began, I was a consultant. I was at McKinsey for a few years, which is just a great place to learn about you know, things, not just yep. selling, but creating things, about costs, about revenue. Uh, and I, what often happens as you do uh, a few years in consulting early on in your career is you go and do an MBA. So I was lucky enough to do an MBA in, in the States. I went to Stanford University there, did a master's education at MBA. Um, and that's actually where I got my first taste of sales. Not that uh, MBA programs have many sales topics at all. There's actually no mandatory sales subject in most MBA uh, groups. This is back almost 20 years ago, uh, and I imagine it's still the case today. But there was one sales elective, just one, uh, one sales. And I did it because I kind of thought, well, this is interesting. I've got plenty of elective space. Let me try it. And pretty much I walked away going, oh, my goodness, I wish I had started my career in sales. Because for me, a lot of what I'm trying to do with my life and with my career is I, I really want to be a, a CEO or a chief revenue officer or a C-suite in a very large company. I can see that the companies that change the world are the big ones or their governments, and I'd love to have my piece and have that impact and develop those kind of skills. And so uh, I remember walking away from this elective, uh, just fascinated by sales and fascinated by going, oh, my goodness, I wish I'd had the chance to go into sales because I want to learn so many things about relating to customers. And really, what a chief executive officer is, is the chief sales officer. That is yeah. what analysts, that's what investors are looking for. Are you able to grow revenue consistently? 
And so, but by that time, I thought, look, I'm a proud MBA. I've got a few work experience. I've got, you know, all, all these MBA expectations. I kind of go back into carrying a bag and to a quota on sales. So I went off into marketing and for a small company called Google. This is back in 2006. Uh, <laughs> I was in marketing and then the technical operations team. So I was very lucky to get my start there. I uh, had left Australia by that time, went to America to study, uh, worked with Africa and then ended up in Europe. And it was there that I fell into sales. I was doing marketing and operations for a few years and one of the things that Google's really good at doing is they encourage you to do these 20% projects, like extra things that you do on top of your normal core job. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I was trying to do as a junior manager was get exposure you know, to board meetings and, and leadership meetings. And I ended up doing a project with a gentleman there uh, called Neil, uh, who was running a very small sales and support operation within Google for basically Gmail back then. This became G Suite, Google Workspace. But this is back in 2009. And we just ended up working on a project together, not to do with sales. Uh, but he was running that sales and support team, which is a smaller people out of Dublin and Ireland. And we worked together. We really liked each other. And then it turned out that he got money to start a, a basically a mid-market sales team. And he said to me, hey, John, like, would you be interested in this? Like, I think we work really well together. You've mentioned to me that you're passionate about it. You'd love to get to sales. Uh, you could have a sales, you could be my first sales manager running sales for two people. You have like a few hundred thousand dollar quota. Why don't you give it a shot? And for me, that was the wonderful thing. And I'll come back to this in, that, in our discussion yeah. later about a couple like Google, which just is a place you to kind of rotate through different stuff and try and build different capabilities. And we thought, hey, why not? I've had a few years here. It'd be great to get a sales experience. And that was 13, 14 years ago. And I loved it. You know, I loved getting into sales. I loved the operations of sales. And pretty much since then, I've been in sales. I was in sales at Google for the next 10 years, working out of Google Cloud, half that time in Ireland, half that time in the US. Uh, I then spent the last two years in Uber, uh, running their sales and customer engineering team. This is all out of Silicon Valley. Uh, and right now, uh, I've, I've been the last year as the chief revenue officer of Domain, uh, which for those who don't know, is a, a very large Australian property marketplace. We have almost a third of the Australian population visits us every month. Uh, we have a very, very large number of listings where people list their house to sell. And I'm responsible for our revenue, which is mostly selling to people the opportunity to list their property on uh, on domain when they're trying to sell their home. Uh, and that's primarily done through a real estate agent. Yeah. And with all of my sales experiences, Google, Uber, and, uh, and, and, and Google, the one common thread for me actually has been I haven't just been selling directly to a customer or directly to a business. I've been typically selling to a business that is on selling that to another business. You call this channel sales or agency sales. That's been kind of my particular expertise. Love it. Love it. Um, and look, you mentioned a number of pretty big organizations. You know, I think you said a small company called Google. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, maybe it, was a, it was pretty small back then. Um, but I'm really intrigued in terms of what 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 was it about sales in particular that lit the fire? Because there are many people that look at sales and they 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 perhaps don't necessarily have a positive perspective on sales. It sounds like you it might have been the people you had access to, or was there something that was like the catalyst for saying, "Hey, I, I, this is this is the I guess the future career direction for me." Was there something specific? Because a lot of people um, are kind of searching for that. Yeah. So just to be clear on my story, I kind of fell into sales. I was lucky. Um, and there were two important, I guess, tech points. There was the point where I decided, oh, I'd really like to work in sales if I could, but it seems too hard. And that was back in 2007. 
And then there's the point in me which came in 2009, which is actually here's an opportunity to actually jump into sales. Are you going to take it? And so the trigger point for the first one was actually that business school course I, I spoke about. Yeah. And what they do in these uh, particularly American-style business schools is you have 20 classes over the course of a quarter. They will typically have a sales leader come, and there's a case study about a sales dilemma that they face. You read up, you have this debate, and then the, the actual person who the case study is written about will come and talk to you what actually happened. It's, it's amazing. It was a wonderful yeah. experience to have you know, in the early part of my career. And what I saw in that was that sales leadership was often a prelude to corporate leadership. Mm. A lot of these people went on to become CEOs. A lot of the dilemmas that they felt um, and they walked through weren't just like, oh, I need to make my quota, what do I do? They, because sales is kind of the bottom line of the business, it's ultimately where the buck stops. It's ultimately yep. the reflection of the efforts of marketing and product. You as a sales leader need to master and be aware of all how all those things fit together. Mm. And so for me, going back to you know, my kind of teenage aspiration to, to be CEO, to kind of change the world through companies or nonprofit or government, I realized, whoa, there's probably no better single vantage point than sales. And a lot of these leaders who I saw had that track record of, okay, they worked for a few decades in sales. Uh, and that's where they got those leadership skills, which, you know, if you became the CMO or the CFO, you, you get a bunch of other great skills too, mm. right? But sales was something which had to touch every area of the company. It had to touch it proportionally to how it ultimately affected the bottom line, which is what analysts and shareholders were rewarding. That was the, the aha moment in 2007, which came through that, that elective, which I did. Yeah. And then for 2009, it was really just about taking the opportunity that came up. I was lucky that it came. I wasn't really searching for it seriously. I, I was in technical operations. I was in, con, intended to continue to run that. It was really what came out of a serendipitous relationship with you know, my former manager and mentor, Neil, uh, about, hey, like, here's an opportunity. He was starting a team. We liked each other. I had no sales experience, but he kind of liked what he saw, and the stakes were low enough that he could take a chance on me. So I was lucky. <laughs> I would like to say I was more brave and bold, but it was kind of a free kick, honestly. Well, and, and I look back at things like that and say, well, everything was meant to happen. So you meeting him, having that opportunity and probably getting an introduction into the area that you did, he probably thought, well, he couldn't do a huge amount of damage, so we can kind of manage it. But it's um, it's the question that sort of pops up now is is thinking about, well, um, what, was, what was the, if you look back now on those first couple of years, knowing what you know now, was it a benefit to you, do you think, uh, not knowing uh, a huge amount about sales or not necessarily having sales as a core uh, requirement or a core desire? Because you kind of mentioned that you fell into it. And there are many people that go into sales with a slightly different take and not necessarily falling into it. Looking back, do you think there were some things that happened in those early years that have now helped you, I guess, fast track to where you are now and the impact you're having? So I think there's two elements of my career that I'll talk about. My time not in sales and then my early days of sales. Uh, I do consider myself very lucky. Uh, you know, I, I, lead, I get to lead a, a team of over 500 uh, here, the majority of which are, are sales and account managers. Uh, it is a position I, I guess when I was growing up, never thought I'd be in the ability to have such influence. But now that I'm here, I, I really see that I'm, I can bring a lot to the table. And I'm really grateful and I think it's a really good fit for the company. You know, I think what distinguishes me as a sales leader, one of the reasons I've been able to kind of have accelerated sales careers at Google, at Uber, and now at Domain, actually has a lot to do with my uh, upbringing before sales. Yep. So I'm not your typical sales leader. 
I I don't even think I have classic sales DNA. I, I do in one sense. I'm a very salesy guy. You know, I love to listen. I love to learn. I love to be, you know, presenty and those kind of things that you might classically associate with. I hope not a used car salesman, but a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, my, my DNA is not that at all. I mean, I grew up as an economics nerd, as a business yeah. studies nerd, you know, yeah. as a consultant. No one in consulting and sales, unless you're the partner and you're selling to new clients. Right? But I grew up in the world of spreadsheets, of PowerPoint presentations, you know, of, of calculus, uh, of these things. This was my upbringing, and that was true of my consulting life. That was true of my business school life. That was true of my early Google career. And I'm very lucky, I think, that you fast forward today, a lot of the people at my level, other sales directors, chief revenue officers, et cetera, they have not had that upbringing. And mm -hmm. that makes me very different as a sales leader. Yeah. Because, you know, you talk about things like sales operations, or even a chief marketing officer, or even technical stuff like a chief product officer. So a lot of sales leaders, and I've hired a lot of these folks actually, like, you know, that's a very foreign world for them. Their world is like, here's your quota, here's your product, go hit it, have great relationships, a very, very important function. But they've been operating that realm for decades. My DNA is not that. My DNA is the analysis. It's the argument, it's the debate, you know, and that's where I grew up. And I think that has allowed me to differentiate myself today, you know, to a lot of my peers. And I think it's interesting coming back to Australia, it's a bit more common in the US, but there's not that many sales leaders like myself that have started outside of sales. Most of those folks, those ex-consultants, MBAs, they end up in finance and marketing, and there's plenty more than there. I'm quite unique. And so that, that was kind of very, I would consider very lucky. It wasn't planned, right? So it was kind of one element that it's, it's the, and that's why, coming back to your question, if someone wants to be a chief revenue officer, I might actually have them consider not starting in sales. Because in some ways, like you, the coaching I got and the, even the difference on paper, my background, even having an MBA, those kind of things are not typical things a lot of sales leaders you know, will pursue. Mm. I, so the second part is I was very lucky that early on in my sales career, I got to progress very rapidly. And I'd like to think it was because of skills, but it wasn't really. I just happened to get onto a product that was going gangbusters. So what I sold at Google started off as effectively monetized Gmail. So Gmail has over a billion users. Back then, this is 2006, 2007, I joined Google. 2009, I joined the team. By 2009, they had a, you know, 100 million users of Gmail. It was a big product. But they, the paid Gmail product, which then they added calendar in and docs and things like that, was very new, super new, right? It accounted for hundreds of thousands of dollars in the region, a few million dollars. That is now a product that is billions going on tens of billions of dollars. It is a massive product, right? How much that was due to me? A tiny smidgen. Even though I've had, I've had these big roles. I ran channel sales for all of Google Cloud. You know, 300 sellers. That was my last big role at Google, right? But I was lucky to get onto the rocket ship where, yes, sales was hard. It's always hard. But I just happened to be a product with such great product market fit and very low penetration that it would grow by double and sometimes triple digits for the next 15 years, right? Like, was that me? No. And so my advice is, you know, if I look back at my career, figuring out where you're going to sell and a place where that sales volume is going to expand is important because what that meant is I went from leading a team of two to leading a team of seven in a year. I went from leading a team of seven to leading a team of 20 the next year. Wow. So by that time, I was then managing sales managers. I went from a team of 20 to a team of 50 in that year after. So now I'm managing people who are managing other people. And then, again, you still have to be good. You have to perform, right? But there's just a, a plenty more population of, of interesting roles. So I got the chance to go from individual sales manager of two people and half carrying the bag myself to kind of managing teams of, of hundreds of salespeople within, you know, uh, you know, within 10 years, right? Like yeah. you can't do that. In, it's very difficult to do that industry. 
that is stagnant or declining, but actually relatively easy to do that in an industry or product that's expanding exponentially. Absolutely. And it sounds like uh, your background helped you develop that pretty quickly, coming from a more technical analytical type background and not necessarily following a standard typical sales process probably even helped you in that in that progression would you say that would I be think the case it was, so it did for me but it may not for others and the reason yeah. was a lot of the sales events i had early in my career was small medium business sales and mid-market um i i later went on to little large enterprise teams and, and you know kind of multi-million dollar hundreds of millions of dollars of deals and things like that but it started off small and I think the combination of, of being primarily online and phone sales, number one, combined with a product that's developing exponentially, and it's, it's therefore a bit more academic, a bit more spreadsheet, that played a lot to my strengths. Uh, and those strengths were like not necessarily relationship management, right? A lot of people, particularly, you know, go back 10, 15 years, would be like, hey, like, I don't feel comfortable buying from you. I mean, you're new to the market, you're, you look young. Like these are all things that would not have been my favor. It was away from those things which disadvantaged me and towards things which are very, very helpful for me, which is, okay, I'm smart, I can pick things up, you know, I can develop operations, we can concoct Salesforce workflows, work on turnaround time, you know, drive down cost per acquisition. This is what I'm very comfortable. In a parallel universe, if I'm dropped straight into enterprise sales, you know, as a junior sales manager or, or an individual sales leader, I think I'd really struggle being kind of like 30 years old, you know, and, and that situation, that would be difficult, right? Because a lot of the, and this is similar to Australian commercial property, a lot of that trust is forged over decades. And people look at your resume, look at your background. They want to know, they want to look you in the eye. They, they, and those, those relationships are very, very important. And so again, I, I think part of that, along with luck, I, I didn't plan that, but I, I think selection is important to play to your strengths if you want to kind of ride that roller coaster curve. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Totally agree. And in that, I mean, you, you, we, we talk about the fact that you spent a lot of time at Google. And I read an article yeah. recently where it was you were talking about the importance of relationships, and particularly when you said before it wasn't necessarily direct to customer. You had to do selling through channel partners and and building building relationships with those guys. And I think, and I, I'm, I'll probably okay. misquote this, <laughs> but it said something along the lines <laughs> of. You know, I wanted to help 20,000 partners become successful. Yes, Google would be a byproduct of that. But it was almost like your role was to help those partners become incredibly successful. And we knew as, as a byproduct, we would be taken care of or something like that. So can you talk from your perspective okay. on the importance of, of relationships? Because you, we've, we've talked about this a couple of times already today. And that is there are a lot of organizations out there who have sales leaders who just want to... Flog the flog the product, flog the service, let retrofit my product into a round hole or a square hole, and just get the target. <laughs> it sounds like you've got a completely different view yeah. around that in terms of relationships. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, it, I definitely do. But let me give a qualifier. It depends on kind of sales you're in. So let me paint three scenarios. One is called B two C. We're selling direct to consumer. You know, and for example, say you might be selling. Let's say eBay is not a good example, but you know, you, you've got a direct e-commerce website. That's one scenario. Let's talk another one, which is, let's call it B2B, which is where you're not selling to end consumers, people who are buying the, the whatever straight from you, that you're, you're selling to businesses who are going to use it to make a product. And then the third kind is, let's call it B2B2C, which is you're selling to a business who is then actually on selling that exact product to a consumer. And the world I've, I've, been, I've come from and the world I'm in is B2B2C, right? Yeah. We sell, we and we take a real estate agent, we encourage them and help them understand how important domain is for their end customers. They sell that exact product and other services, you know, to their end customer. And relationships are important in all three kinds. 
But it's really important to diagnose which kind you're operating in. Because, for example, if you're in B2C, right, let's just take, you know, let's take an example. You are, you are an, an eBay operator trying to sell, I made something up, trading cards to lots of people. I just made that up, right? Actually, relationships with your customers aren't that important. Because a lot of customers don't want to talk to you and if they're talking to you, something's wrong. The relationships that are really important is your suppliers. You know, whether you're getting these cards from China, from America, you're making them yourself, whatever it is, right? Like, these are the, you know, that's where your relationships are really important. Now, B2B is a different kind of relationship. This is where maybe your office works and you're selling to a big corporate, right? And uh, that's, that's great, right? Like, they're spending millions of dollars of you from stationery. You need to really make sure that you've got good relationships with your suppliers, but actually your relationship with the procurement person at Domain is super important, and that's what you're going to invest in. My relationships are different to both of those in my current world. In B2B2C, the relationships I have that are most important is with that intermediary. So for me, it's the real estate agents. It's the Ray Whites. It's the, the Jealous Craigs. It's the Century 21s. Right? It's the Kane Burtons, you know, the world. And these are real estate agents, which in turn hire hundreds of real estate agencies, uh, agents, who then will talk to thousands of people trying to sell their house or are looking for a home. And for me, my relationship with the end customer is actually not that important, right? Because the end customer is not going to come to me if there's a problem. They're going to come to the intermediary. My relationship with that intermediary, that channel or that agent in this case, that is the most important thing here. So that's a bit of a qualifier as to before we build relationships, you've got to know who the relationship is most important. Is the supplier, is the end business, or is the intermediary? And for me in my career, it's typically in that intermediary. Yeah. And the thing about that relationship, just to go back to what I was saying that article you quoted, is when you're running a channel sales program, which many companies are, right? This is not just Domain uh, and other you know, large property technology companies. If you think about a Microsoft, they typically do most of their business through a systems integrator, a Deloitte or Accenture, similar with Google, similar with Amazon. If you think about Amazon, you know, most of their sales is not their own stuff. It's people selling on the Amazon platform who are selling to their customers, you know, and Amazon is, is going through them. Right? So you've got to know that, but when you're building an agency sales or a channel sales team, it is all about them, all about them. Your business cannot exist if their business is successful. So everything I start to think about is how do I make them wildly successful? And that's just how much money can I give them by making my operations link? How do I share a big part of that cut, a commission, a license fee? Right? Number two, how do I give them as much enablement as possible? How do I help train them in my stuff? When there's some things we'll watch on, how do we make sure they find out before their end customers so they can be the hero, the face of that, the person, something like that? Number three, how do we make sure they get any problems resolved quickly? If there's a problem, like something goes down or something doesn't work, the customer doesn't come after domain. They're going to go after them. It's the agent's reputation on the line. I really got to build that. Right? So these are a lot of the things that you work on. And in the end, that leads to a lot of stuff that you know, we built at Google. We have certifications where people who are, you know, who are building business around Google, they could come and get free training. We'd give them incentives. We'd give them part of the Google tool. We'd help them feel like Googlers. Uh, we want to give them a sense of our culture. We want to develop as many materials as possible with them. We want to understand their business model, help them drive costs and multiply their, their revenue. It's got to be about them. It all starts with the mindset of that. 100%. Love it. Love it. And then when you take that, what happens then to the level of loyalty that those auto, those intermediaries, if you like, have with you? Yeah. You know, the funny thing about sales is this. I think a lot of sales is about relationships. But I do think in the internet age, loyalty per se is overrated. 
Not that loyalty isn't important. Loyalty is crucial. Without loyalty, whether it's business-like domain or I think our frequent flyer programs with airlines, yeah. our revenues, our steady revenues will be under jeopardy. But loyalty is typically thought of like a relationship. Like, oh, you know, like need to make sure that we're being nice to them, which we should be, that they like us, which ideally is good. But I actually think loyalty ends up being a lot more rational and a bit more cold-hearted. Or put differently, loyalty only extends to which a relationship with you is in their best interest. Right? I would never expect people to use domain if they don't think it works. Right? Yeah. I think that's a natural part of how we evolve as a society's economy, of how, of how businesses rise and fail. So I do want people to be loyal, but I need to earn their loyalty by making it a rational decision for them to keep doing business with us, which is why ultimately loyalty to me comes back to those two things. What is the profit and loss statement for that agency? How are they making revenue? Right? And how does them working with me increase their revenues faster than working with other suppliers? What are their costs? And how does working with me help them control their costs? To the extent to which that equation is truer for me than it is other suppliers is the extent to which I have their loyalty. And when that stops, they, sh they should no longer expect to use me and I shouldn't count on that. It's a really interesting perspective. And, and as you were talking about that, then I'm thinking uh, one of the things that I talk a lot about to sales leaders and sales teams is, is the yeah. fact that it's Essentially, sales is problem solving. And if, if you as a sales leader and a sales team can identify a problem that either exists tangibly in the marketplace or exists within a, a customer base, and if you can articulate that problem probably better than that person can or that company can, then they'll give you almost um, uh, some sort of attribution that you must have a solution to that problem. Yeah. Um, which yeah. means that... I think... Yeah, sorry, go for it. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, and what you were talking about there around loyalty, it kind of it kind of makes sense because there are many organisations out there that will continue to try to solve a problem that's not actually there, but in the process expect loyalty, and they think the loyalty comes from giving <laughs> like a discount or or throwing other things in there yeah. to try and incent yeah. customers to want to continue to do business. But you said it yourself: if there's no need anymore, then we don't do business anymore. It's as simple as that. Right. That's right. People are rational and the businesses are, are so competitive nowadays. If you're not a rational purchaser, you're not going to survive, right? So, you know, that's, uh, that's really important. So what I would say is, um, what I would say, sorry, is what I have observed in great businesses is that they try and reach that step where they're earning loyalty through being a trusted partner. So let me tell you a bit of a story about this and, and how we're implementing it in domain. Um, I, I mentioned I worked for a company called McKinsey, which is a management consulting company. This is a company that prides itself on advising CEOs, right, uh, and charges a lot of money to do so. Yeah. And what McKinsey does is when you're day one, you're freshly, oh my goodness, like a 22-year-old university graduate, they send you to the kind of a mini MBA induction program. And what's drilled into you are the kind of the tenets of McKinsey. Uh, these are really interesting things like obligation to dissent, which is like you need to speak up no matter how junior you are. But the one that stuck with the most is the no, what, what they call trusted advisor, which is what success looks like as a McKinsey consultant is that the CEO trusts you for advice. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to pay you for that advice, but they look to you for that trusted advice. And to me, when it comes to loyalty, this is the thing that can help sustain your relationship through thick and thin if they actually feel that you are providing them objective, transparent, strategic, and helpful advice, super, super useful. And so, for example, at Domain, the way we do it is we have account managers that are spread throughout uh, Australia who advise you know, real estate agencies on 
how to help their sellers bring their, 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 their houses to market. What's really, really important here uh, is, that, um, we, is that I help each of those account managers get to a stage with their, the agents they're solving where they're trusted. We call it essential partner. But the goal is, particularly coming up some volatile times in the property market, that they would turn to their domain representative, not just when they need to buy domain products or, or have, a, have an issue, but because that person knows their business, because they can give them advice, uh, because that person's not trying to try and flog the latest product we have for domain, but can actually give them a holistic industry data-centric view that helps them make better business decisions. And that, to me, is what, as a salesperson, no matter what the company is, is usually, again, for B2B and B2B2C, but may not be for B2C, uh, that's the kind of stage that we should all uh, attempt to occupy. Love it. Love it. Lots to think about in that one. And particularly if you're a if you're a sales leader who is looking to build that loyalty, because that that terminology trusted advisor or trusted partner, I'm not sure about you, but I think it it gets thrown around too easily, and it might be an aspiration, but there's a lot of organisations and a lot of leaders that don't necessarily understand what it takes to be that. Yeah, agreed, agreed. It, it's hard, right? And that's why you know I'll, I can talk more about this, but you know I've been a domain for a year. I spent a lot of time trying to really increase. The, uh, I guess the, the money and the time that we're spending on enabling our folks, uh, mm. not just in terms of product training, that's important, but in terms of how they can really be educated about the broad set of concerns that a, you know, a leader of an agency might have and how they can channel that into being a better essential partner. That to me is yeah. crucial you know, uh, for, for their success, not just at Domain, but as a salesperson, as a customer facing person in their career. Uh, and I think that a lot of that starts with how much you're investing in enabling your people to not just, okay, great, hit quotas, and I don't care how you do it, but hey, like, we're yeah. going to really help you be world-class. Here's how we're going to help you. And if we do it right, that should play on the scoreboard as well. Oh, sure. And if you do it right, because I'm going to ask you about philosophy in a second, um, it becomes that success becomes sustainable because you're doing it with the right methodology and with the right thought process and you've got your right values in line as well. Before I ask you about philosophy, because I'm, I'm curious to see whether you've got your own specific philosophy around leadership and, and particularly sales leadership. Yeah. One of the articles I did read, you're talking about growth, the growth mentality. And it was, yeah. I think it was at your time at Uber, correct me if I'm wrong, where you're talking about your experience in the States in terms of how people in the States look at growth in terms of the, just the way they approach it from, yeah. a, from a mental capacity. Now that you're back in Australia, yeah. um, and no doubt you've brought a lot of experience, global experience back into Australia, how would you, and I don't necessarily want to compare Australia with America, but this is important <laughs> from a sales perspective and certainly from a leadership perspective. Because I believe that, that leaders, in order for us to be sustainably successful, we have to have a really positive growth mentality. What are you noticing between Australia and, and the US in particular around that component? Are we closer together or... Is there still a big gap that we in Australia um, need to need to be mindful of? Um, yeah, so America is different. America is different. I do think there is a reason that America, despite you know its political dysfunctions and challenges, has you know probably inarguably been the most productive country in the world over the past you know hundred years and the most influential country in the world. Um, and that is because there is this mentality. In America, you know, particularly in technological firms right now, that Silicon Valley firms previously would have been manufacturing or oil or things like that. That mindset, they wouldn't call it a growth mindset, but that mindset is effectively world domination. 
Yeah. Right? Which is, I have an idea, how can I scale it everywhere? That's the mindset. And it's so common that it's just a given, right? Whatever company you're in, all these tech companies, whether you're a startup or you're in a Microsoft or Apple, like everybody's trying to climb the corporate well, I just say everyone. Many people are trying to climb the corporate ladder. They see as going to those companies as training, training to get to the next rung in the ladder. Every product that's being developed, no one is developing a product that's a million dollars or $10 million. It starts there. But everyone's trying to develop billion-dollar products. And if you're a, a company like Apple or Facebook that has company, uh, you know, products with billions of dollars, you're thinking of like tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. So everybody's thinking at scale from, from day one. And, and it's such a deep part of the mindset you know, in American startups, big companies, you know, educational institutions. Again, I'm making very broad uh, you know, national assumptions or national generalizations. And I think the, the really cool thing in Australia is that I think we have the roots of that. It certainly isn't as, as regular or as deep, but we have it in kind of a more balanced way. Because I think what comes with the American mindset is a bit more, the kind of lifestyle takes a hit. You know, like people, holidays aren't really celebrated. It's getting there, it's changing. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. not, it's not so cool to kind of like, you know, self-flagellation as it was maybe a decade ago. Sleep is cool again, whereas maybe 10 years ago, it's like, oh, no time for sleep. Let's get up and, and deliver, you know, let it roll. You know, so I think things are changing in America, but I think Australia in some ways has the best of both worlds. We have a lot of that desire to be meritocratic. We have that desire to be the best, to be world-changing. You see the companies like Atlassian, like Canva, these mm. incredible companies that are scaling, you know, kind of like and beating a lot of American companies at their own game. You know, tall poppy syndrome was probably something that kind of argued against that. I've seen that really decline. I, I think people generally celebrate success and want to be successful and, you know, have tried to try to, to be to celebrate that, not be jealous of that. But I think Australia has the opportunity to kind of do that in a more sustainable and a really cool way, which I think is why a lot of Australians are really successful in Silicon Valley, because people see the American way, but they also see a more sustainable way and a cooler way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Everyone loves an Aussie, <laughs> or at least I love a uh, Aussie accent. <laughs> so um, I'm also conscious of time, Sean. So um, I just I, I did want to talk to you about and ask you about a specific your specific approach to leadership and whether this is whether this has evolved over time or whether there was something that was embryonic when you first jumped into sales and first got that opportunity to be a sales manager. Was it the people who you worked with at the time that started to instill in you a certain philosophy that you've carried through, or is it something that's been an evolutionary process? And if we were to ask you today, what is your, I guess, your approach, your specific approach to leadership, or how would you define yourself as a leader? What would you say? Well, there's like so many different questions there, which I want to answer. Let me start with the sales <laughs> one, and every good time I'll, I'll talk about the leadership one. <clears throat> so I have a very specific sales methodology. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Which I want to share, I do want to share with, with your, your listeners. And actually, and maybe this fixes with my background, it was it was never taught to me in a sales methodology at all. I, I love those sales methodologies. Like we use Challenger a lot, you know, uh, at, at, at Google. We've used other things in different companies. I think there's a lot to bring. And I think those, those are great value in terms of external credentialing. But for me, my sales methodology actually came out of my time at McKinsey. And when I was at McKinsey, I did a lot of, I guess we call it, you know, transformation. We'd go into an organization, a lot of Australia's biggest organizations, and we would try and improve their sales and customer teams. Not necessarily so they could sell more, but so they could be, I guess, better and, uh, and, and more loyal and, uh, and, and, and more productive and, and, and happier about working there. And effectively, the, the methodology that was handed me down, which I then 
uh, adapted to sales was the following. Number one, it's all about mindset. It's all about mindset. And the mindset that you're trying to take a team on is a journey, a journey from something and to another thing. Typically, it seems like from selling one product to solution selling or from, you know, farming to hunting. You know, like these are kind of the shifts that you might identify. Different companies, different places. But step one is you identify what shift you're trying to make in the organization. Whether it's going great or need to turn around, there's a shift. And then to make that shift, there are four things you need to do simultaneously that need that that must be. If you don't do all these things, the change won't last. I'll talk to each of these four things. But basically, the first one is you need new knowledge to make the shift. You need to have role models who've made that shift. You need incentives that reward the shift and potentially punish not shifting. And then you need systems to kind of track the the progress against the new versus the old. Right. So I'll talk about this and I'll, I'll talk about what we're doing at Domain, actually, because uh, this is something which I've, I've really tried to implement with the team. I talked about knowledge before. Whenever you're going through a shift and you're trying to get a large group of, 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 of sales folks to go along with it, you need to give them new skills, not just product knowledge, but what are the things? And, you know, solution selling is one thing which I've done in every organization I've had the chance to be a leader at. What are the skills that you need to help someone who's good at selling one thing to be good at selling 10 different things, right? Yes, I mean, you need to train about each product, but a lot of it's yeah. about like, listening, yeah. asking provocative questions, understanding the strategy of what is happening in that industry and therefore what, what changes where they need to be ahead of the game. Right? So at Domain, we invested a lot of money and a lot of time in trying to make sure our sales folks, who are already really well loved by customers, I'm grateful to be heard of that, to be world-class at selling and account management. And a lot of it is just seminars, training, finding the right methodology, adapting it, helping our managers be better, helping them be better coaches. Number one, yeah. if you don't help with make the knowledge shift, you'll be successful. Number two, role modeling. People need to know where they're going and they often experience that through people, right? Often when I coach people at careers, the first question I ask is where you want to be in five years time. And it's a good yeah. North Star. But the easiest way to answer that question is, Choose someone who you'd like to be in five years' time. Not in their exact life, but who's doing the kind of stuff you'd like to get to. Because once you envisage that, that's when change becomes possible. That's when you can break it down to the 100 micro steps you need to take to get there in the next five years. Role modeling things such as identifying the people in the organization who are doing this already, and there always are, always are rock stars doing it, and then trying to find ways that they're kind of lifted up. That's things like awards that's going to present, you know, uh, or them running training sessions. It's promoting them. It's paying them more. It's making sure you retain them. People need to see the change and go, wow, okay, that person's done it. That person's made the change. I'd like to be that person. That person's really being looked after. That's the kind of thing I'd like to have. Number one, knowledge. Number two, role modeling. Number three, incentives. If you don't pay people, you're just not going to keep good people. Right? And so for me, a big part of when I come in is I want to look and really understand the, the, how we remunerate. That's really, really important. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of what I try and do is I want to disproportionately reward the top 20%. Right? So, for example, some things we've done is we've now brought back accelerators, made them steeper. You, you, you beat your quota, you go under after this key metric, we're going to make sure you get richly rewarded. Your bonuses are doubled. You know? yeah. uh, we, we, with COVID, we paused some things like incentive trips. Things like that, right? And, and again, different industries operate in different ways, but I've, I've found this really symbolically important. They're kind of nice. They're a vote of confidence. They're a memorable experience. People often meet their significant other there. Like, lots of cool stuff, you know, like that. So I want to make sure that you, that everyone hears the message of like, hey, if you're a great performer, you're going to be disproportionately looked after here. You're going to be really rewarded. That doesn't mean we don't value everyone else. 
we value yeah. you as long as you're performing and we value the contribution you've given, but we're going, to really out, we're going to really make sure that incentives work for the top, but that incentives work across the board. We should be differentiated between top and bottom performers. We should be rewarding things that drive value for the company that are controllable and really working to understand that REM plans, make it comprehensive, make it simple, uh, because often, and I'm, I'm a big problem you know, when, I, when I'm not careful, is you make it too complex, it's not simple, everyone gets confused, people leave. Absolutely. And the last part is the systems. How do we make sure that, you know, you can track your progress? You know, for example, classically like the sales, right? What's important? Revenue. What drives revenue? Pipeline. What drives pipeline? Activity. What drives activity? You know, meetings, response time, right? You want to make sure that particularly, and I've just described like an acquisition funnel, right? That you've got the systems that help people track what they can control. Now, my account managers might operate a different way. They might have, have, have less things, right? But, you know, and, and this is a lot of been my work at Domain is to understand how we're tracking these things right now. You know, what would it take for us to really use our CRM, our cost relation management tool, really well? How do we make sure that everyone is having the right kind of meetings and conversations that drive that? If you don't have those four things together, knowledge, role modeling, incentives, and systems, right, you're not going to land the change. You're going to have a great incentive and you'll get some behavior, but it'll wear off like a sugar high. Or you introduce a new system and people actually get confused because they're like, why do I need to do this? What's the point? Or you have role modeling, but because the substance isn't there, the role models will leave and the people won't know how to get there, right? So, you know, all these things are important. I think I, I, that's how I diagnose, you know, any, uh, any company I get a chance to work with. Beautiful, beautiful. I, uh, I like that. There was many, many answers to multiple questions and I must apologize. I asked, <laughs> I asked multiple questions at once. <laughs> Mate, that's why I'm not I, a BBC I interviewer. I'm going to answer the second part of the question if you want to, but I'm conscious of time. But, uh, that, uh, I have a different criteria for leadership uh, if you want to go there or, or we can take over everyone for the time we have left. Well, I, I, I did want to ask you a question around now that you are at Domain, you've been there for just under two years yeah. now. Um, coming from the organisations you have, and if you look at all things being considered, particularly as interest rates in, in Australia and around the world continue to go up, if you look at... Yeah. Yeah, if you look at sales leaders and sales people, and I guess this this is either direct to market or in your particular market, B2B to B to C, what do you consider to be one of the biggest challenges, but also the biggest opportunities in the next 12 to 24 months? So I think that if I was to describe the next 12 to 24 months, it's uncertain. That's the one word I'd use. Yeah. You know, inflation is up. Okay, we need to fight it. The problem, I mean, how do we fight it? I mean, what you know, developed economies do now is they raise interest rates. Right? That has all these negative externalities, or maybe you might say the positive, but the effect of that is, is to suppress you know, consumer spending. Uh, you know, it's going to have a direct effect on house prices and the number of people therefore wanting to buy and to sell. It's going to affect every part of the economy. It's such a powerful lever. And yeah. those kind of things would be very swallowable if you knew how long they were going to go for. The problem is we don't. For all we know, inflation might already be handled right now. We might have already seen the peak. It's all downhill from here. Mm. Or this could be the start of many years you know, of inflation. And so it's uncertain. And therefore, we don't know, are we going to avoid a recession, have a mild recession, or have the worst recession in 40 years? We, we just don't know. And I guess what I really encourage my people to do is the following. Number one, be aware. I just understand what's going on. I, you know, going back to the notion of being an essential partner or a trust advisor, people want to do business with people who can not just talk at their product, but understand their worldview. So what's the worldview which our customers are operating in? 
How do we help them? And uh, frankly, I think it helps you give, it helps give ourselves a sense of control when we understand some of the forces. We don't get surprised by the wind and the waves. Right? It's like, okay, this is happening. This might happen next, or maybe it's a shock, but at least I'm aware. So number one, yep. be informed. Number two, do what you can control and not what you can't. So at Domain, we are heavily dependent on less so house prices, but the number of houses that sell. Right? So if you think how we charge, we generally, most of our revenue comes from, you know, people will pay for listings because they know the domain app is seen by, you know, 8.5 million people every month, uh, including you know, most people in the capital cities who are looking to buy. If you want to yeah. reach them, you've got to be with us. Okay. But as houses turnover flows and as less people want to sell because they go, oh, I don't know what's happening in the market, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what to do, then our volumes take a hit. Can you control that? No, you can't. No. The Reserve Bank controls that. The general, the government controls that. You don't. But what can you control? You can control pipeline. You can control the churn of the customers you have. You can control the add-ons of other things you might sell. Like for us, we sell a bunch of SaaS solutions, like a, a DocuSign product for agents, you know, or an intelligence product called PriceFinder that helps agents be more intelligent about the, the houses they're trying to sell or buy. Right? So not every agent is using that. Only a small percentage of those who are using our core products are using those add-on products. So I can control those things. I can't control where they have the budget, where they'll buy now, but I can control if I've had the conversation, if I can put them as a pipeline entry. And I can yep. control how many conversations I have, right? So do what you can control. Don't worry about that you can't, right? It's kind of the second thing. And then the third thing, which I think is the hardest lesson for people who are really results-driven, which is probably most of your listeners, it's a word that, uh, that our, our head of people, uh, Ross, says to me a lot, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. <laughs> This year might suck. It might really suck. We're yeah. already seeing hiring freezes. We're seeing layoffs happening in the economy. Again, that's actually part of the design of what the Reserve Bank's trying to do to try and get over inflationary expectations. But it's going to hurt. It might hurt you. You might lose your job even though you've been great, right? You might see other people who are great lose their jobs. And that's not so nice. And you may not even agree with those decisions. But in the end, all you can do is be kind to yourself, knowing that you can be aware you can control some things, you can't control many others. And in the end, it's just business. There are more important things. There's family, there's your health. Business is wonderful. I feel so lucky I get to work. I feel privileged to work in this country. I feel privileged to work in sales. But in the end, it is part of my life. It is not all yeah. of my life. And it's important for me to be kind you know, to the bigger picture. I think that's a, uh, that's a wonderful way to finish off because I've just looked at the time and I know you've got another meeting to get to. So... I love that <laughs> um, awareness and focus on things you can control and be kind to yourself, which applies to us as individuals, but also particularly as leaders. Um, and if you're conscious of the example that you're setting, if we as a sales leader in particular can be kind of as, to ourselves, then that can rub off by example to our team as well. So, um, mate, I, I want to yeah, thank yeah. you for um, for jumping on and spending some time having a chat. It's been a phenomenal conversation. Where can uh, where can people get uh, hold of you, and particularly if they're interested in uh, knowing a bit more about John, where's the uh, best way that people sure. can connect with you? Sure, I, I, I don't have a website. Uh, you know, I'm just on LinkedIn. Uh, so please feel free to reach out uh, wherever you are around the world, whatever industry you're in. Uh, I think it'd be you know particularly helping everyone understand sales a bit better, and each of us trying to better ourselves is really important. So don't hesitate to find me on, on LinkedIn and reach out. 
Uh, if you are interested, of course, I will give a small plug on Domain. Uh, you know, if you want to find out more about Domain, uh, please sort of reach out to me or, you know, domain.com.au. We'll list all there. And we have a pretty large research section as well if you've got the top. So don't hesitate. We've got a lot of interesting papers on, you know, downturns and what happens in a, in an inflationary environment. So I uh, hope that will be helpful to you, whether you are in the industry or just interested in Australian property, which I think a lot of Australians are. Absolutely. Terrific. John, once again, thank you so much for spending some time. I know in the middle of the day, we're all busy, but um, I do appreciate greatly the opportunity of having a conversation with you. And uh, hey, we'll probably have to do this again sometime. Darren, don't hesitate to reach out. Congratulations on reaching 500 episodes. Uh, that's a, a huge milestone. Thank you for all your impact. Uh, you know, I think we will ultimately judge our lives. We'll measure our lives by the impact we've had. You found a great way to have multiplied impact and a lot of people who will in turn lead big organizations. So thanks for your work. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Terrific, John. Thanks very much. Greatly appreciate it. Good on you. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.